Well, let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of Isaiah. Book of Isaiah, chapter 52. The book of Isaiah, chapter 52, as the message this morning will be on the cross, the source of missions. And Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, 6. The prophet Isaiah, here in the book of Isaiah, writes in verse 13 of chapter 52. He writes, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This morning we're blessed to have Dr. Rick Kallenberg, who is the Pacific Northwest Director and Coordinator for SIM, Servants in Missions. And we've known him for quite some time, and he has been an encouragement to us, our missions committee, and our church over the years. And we're blessed to have him come and open the Word of God to us. So let's give him a warm round of applause again. Thank you, Pastor, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. This is the first time that I've had the privilege of worshiping with you on the Sunday where you commune with the Lord around the Lord's table. And it's a great privilege to be here. And it's a privilege to kind of connect communion with missions. And it all is focused on what God did when he sent Christ to die on the cross for us. And that truly is not only the source of our message, the message of salvation in Christ, but it's the motivation for us. To take that message to the world because Christ not only died for us, he died for the world. He died for every person in it. And every person needs to have the opportunity to hear that message. And we, as those who are privileged to be cross-cultural missionaries, are motivated by that reality. And truly, the cross and what God did on the cross and what Christ accomplished for us when God allowed him to die and in fact sent him for that purpose is the very foundation of our faith today and the source of our message and I 
I kind of tried to capture what I want to say in these few moments together in this statement. The ultimate motivation and message for the mission of the church is the cross. The emblem of shame and rejection of the Savior of the world, which is embraced by Christians but misunderstood by other religions who need to understand and believe this message, a message of love, hope, and salvation. The passage that we just read is what I consider to be the heart of the Old Testament. Some have kind of called Isaiah, they've called him the fifth evangelist because you can get saved by reading the book of Isaiah. Of course, the name Jesus per se is not mentioned, but we learn so much about Christ, his work, and what he offers to us by way of salvation. And many of the verses that we often use when we witness to people come right out of the book of Isaiah. And this passage particularly captures what Christ did on the cross and describes him and his humiliation and suffering, but describes as well what he did when he died in our place and took our sin and iniquity so that we can have forgiveness, life, and salvation in him. It's a unique text. It's a text that is a part of what is known as the servant songs of Isaiah. These passages are some of the greatest passages in the whole Bible. And they describe many years beforehand what God was going to do in the future and provide hope. The hope of deliverance both from captivity as well as in salvation and ultimately the reign of God for the people of Israel. It's a passage that was written about 700 B.C. during the time of Isaiah, but written especially for the benefit of Jewish captives who would live in Babylon a hundred years later, who would kind of feel, has, has our God forsaken and abandoned us? Is He still the sovereign Lord of the ages that we believe Him to be? And would have lost that hope that comes in knowing that truth. And so these passages as they would read them, would tell them, no, our Lord is about to do something great. He is truly in control. He's going to bring salvation to His people. He's going to deliver them from their captivity. And in the context of that, He's going to provide salvation wonderfully through His servant, the servant of the Lord, who we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing passage. It's a wonderful passage, and I encourage you to read it. And it's truly a profound passage or text. It gives hope to those captives. It gives them hope of deliverance and salvation. And it took place and it came to them in the context of their suffering. And in the context of, of the loss of so much, they seemed to have they had lost their land, they had been taken out of their land. Everything seemed to be hopeless. And in that context, this light of hope, of glorious future salvation is brought to them through the message of the prophet Isaiah. And it truly brought them encouragement, as it will to us, I trust, today. Furthermore, it's a prophetic passage. In the passage we just read, it's clearly describing someone, this servant, who would be dying on behalf of other people, a man of sorrows, who would die for us. Someone who would take us wayward sheep and provide for us salvation and take his our iniquity on himself and provide us what we could not ever provide for ourselves. It truly is a great prophecy of the coming death of Christ on the cross. Psalm 22 is another passage that, by way of prophetic word, 
David described his sufferings, but in terms that could only have been ultimately fulfilled by the suffering of Jesus. And so we know that in God's plan, all the way back to eternity past, Jesus truly was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And God's plan for the whole world was to allow us human beings to choose to rebel against Him, but that He would institute a plan that would bring His Son to this world as a man to die for us. And in that great work of redemption, we who know the grace of God will be able for all eternity to give Him glory and praise because of that experience of salvation and grace that He brought to us in a way that we would have never known if we had never experienced His grace in that way. The angels have never experienced salvation. Some of them are elect and did not fall. But they have never known what we know as believers who were lost, who have been found. People who had no hope because of our sin and rebellion, who have found in Jesus, as we sang in the song earlier, the hope of eternal salvation. And for all eternity, we will glorify and worship Him for that wonderful truth. But it's... it's let me ask you this question. I want to give three ways in which I see the cross as directly connected to missions. And in fact, in the passage we read, I'm going to show you that missions is there. You know, one of the things that I've discovered as I've taught the Bible is this. You can go to every or any book of the Bible and find missions there. Because I'm convinced that our God is a God who has a heart for the world. And from eternity past, as we just said, he had a plan to provide salvation for the world. Therefore, everything he does is ultimately to show his love and grace and redemption to the world. And every generation of believers, be it the Jews in the Old Testament or us now in the age in which we live, our reason for being, our reason for being here is to proclaim that glorious message of our glorious God. And missions is truly found throughout the Bible. And I'm going to show it in this passage in just a minute. But what I, what I want to do is ask you a question. And this relates to my point. What is the ultimate Motivation of the heart of God. What is it that makes God's heart move into action? I believe it's truly His desire to provide and to proclaim and have proclaimed His salvation to the world. I'm convinced that God's motivation is that His world would know His love provided through His Son and the salvation that He has. So, the cross is, first of all, the ultimate evidence of the passion of God's heart. When God put Christ on the cross, He was saying to us and to the world, I love you. I love you. John 3.16, perhaps the most well-known verse in the Bible, says it so well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 says, At just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the cross is the permanent symbol and sign that God loves people. And we who have experienced that love are the ones who have to share that love with a world that God loves who hasn't heard that message yet. And we are called to do that. The nations need to hear. 
That's what missions is. It's people who know the love of God, who have experienced the grace of God by receiving Christ and His cross work and all the implications of that, who share it simply with other people. Now, I want to show you missions in this passage. Look at Isaiah. We saw Isaiah 52, verse 15. It talks about many nations would be sprinkled. The work of this servant would have effect on many nations. People would be influenced and impacted by what he would do. Turn back to chapter 49, verses 5 and 6. This is all part of this context of the servant songs. Look at what it says in verse 5. Now the Lord says, He who formed you in the womb, that's talking about the servant of the Lord, Jesus, to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. Christ's work was to bring his people back to the Lord. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, here it is, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept? Now listen to this. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This work of this servant is going to bring salvation, not just for Israel, but to the ends of the earth. I find it very interesting that the idea of a light to the Gentiles is given. You see, God's purpose for Israel in the Old Testament was to be that. When God delivered His people out of Egypt, brought them back to the promised land, they were to be like a light on a hill that would draw the nations to this God that truly answers prayer, this God that truly keeps His word, this God that's more powerful than the gods of Egypt, this God that truly controls history. But what happened? What happened? The Jews became very hmm, possessive of their position in the plan of God. And they began to get a little bit ethnocentric. And they began to see those Gentiles out there as people to be hated, not people who needed the message that their God wanted them to both model and preach to the world. And sadly, their religion became very legalistic and institutional. And by the time Jesus came, he said... You guys are totally missing exactly what I made you to be. But now, you see, Jesus is going to be the light to the Gentiles. Jesus is the one in whom the Gentiles are going to find ultimate salvation. And so Jesus will commission us, as he did in the Sermon on the Mount, to be a light to the hill, on the hill. And we are going to fulfill, and hopefully are fulfilling that role, not just drawing people, but specifically then to be a light to carry the message as he would give in the Great Commission. So, God loves people. God wants the message out. Look at Isaiah chapter 50, um, chapter 55, chapter 55. Chapter 55 is one of the greatest salvation offering chapters in the world. And look, it doesn't say just to the Israelites. It says, verse 1, Come all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. You have no money. Come and buy and eat. God makes this wonderful grace available to you. Verse 7, See, I have made him, my uh, David, a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander of the peoples. God used David and his people ultimately to impact the world. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. And then this offer to everybody, seek the Lord while He may be found, call on Him while He is near. And then this great passage that we've often heard, um, 
Let them turn to the Lord and they will, He will have mercy on them and to our God and He will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways. God does it uniquely when He accomplishes His purpose. And then how great are His ways. We've often taken this verse a bit out of context. But notice, again, the idea that the whole world is going to hear. Verse 13, this will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. The point is this, this salvation is offered. It's a gift to all peoples. And God wants it to be heard and known. He wants His people, David and us, to be a witness to those peoples that they might know the message of God's grace and the true knowledge of the God of Israel is the God, Jehovah, who has come in the person of Jesus to give us life. Someone has said this, Missions has its origin in the heart of God. God is the fountain of sending love. This is the deepest source of mission. It is impossible to penetrate deeper still. There is mission because God loves people. The message of the cross is that God loves you, God loves me, God loves the world. And we have the privilege to be the proclaimers of that message. One of our trips to Africa, we went to a place in central Togo. Togo is a little nation there in West Africa. And we have a missionary couple there, the only missionaries we have there, who are working with some nationals, proclaiming the love of God. In fact, they have a ministry on the radio called, in French, it's literally translated, God Loves You Ministry. And it's interesting that they would use that in a Muslim context. This is a Muslim area. This is the Kotokoli people of Togo. Almost completely Muslim. Because if you know anything about Islam, you know that they, they have the idea that God is love. But you know what? Their understanding of God does not include our understanding of love as we understand God's unconditional, gracious love to us in Christ. I had the privilege of teaching at a school in Nigeria in which I had students, some of them Muslims. And I was supposed to teach them Islam. And I had to be very careful how I presented the understanding of Islam. And I had to know what Islam was about when I talked to them. But I wanted to witness to them too. And so I decided this idea of the love of God would be a key point to try to get them thinking. Thinking about who God really is as compared between the Islamic concept of God, Allah, and the concept as revealed in the Bible. And so as I taught them Islam, I said, you know, you have 99 names for God and the camel only knows the 100th name. And uh, he's supposed to be so wise that only he knows that 100th name. But you say that God is love. What does that mean? And then I talked about how the Bible explains the love of God, that God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In order to be loving and to be identified and defined as love, you have to love something or someone, Right. And because there's a triune God, God is love. For throughout eternity, there's been a, an amazing love relationship between the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In, Isla- in, 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 in Islam, there's one God, and they really push the idea of monotheism to the extreme and say that means one is one. We understand one to mean unity. And so they, they really, to say God is love, who does he love? He he really has to have an object to show that love to. And we know that Jesus, as the second person of the triune God, in order to show the love of God, not only within the context of the Trinity, but more importantly for the world, 
at that point, he came to show God's love to the creatures that he had created and made in his image. And that love was demonstrated more profoundly than anywhere else on the cross. You see, the cross is truly the ultimate evidence of the passion of the heart of God, the love of God for his fallen creation and his desire to see them come to know him and his grace in the salvation that Christ provided. A second thing is the cross is the crucial event in God's plan of salvation. What happened on the cross? Well, many of us have seen, I assume some of you have seen the the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And that is an accurate portrayal of the suffering, physical suffering involved in Christ's passion. And they did a very excellent job of researching it. So we know there was a lot of suffering. But you know what? Jesus wasn't the only one who went through that. In fact, on the very day that he died, there were two other men crucified as well. Hundreds of people were crucified. We know that this was the most cruel invention of how to put a person to death and was very, very terrible as a way to die. But biblically, it's the spiritual transactions that occurred on that time, during that time, particularly the last three hours of Christ on the cross, where he was accomplishing for us our salvation. That is really what we need to understand today in order to appreciate the plan of salvation. And when we enter into the communion service, to truly enter in with an understanding, an appreciation of what Christ did for us. We call it the substitutionary atonement. That's exactly what Isaiah is teaching us in this passage that we read. He who was the perfect lamb without any spot, any blemish, any sin, took on our sin. The Bible says he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he took on our sin. He, he, by, by the act of imputation, our sin was placed on Christ. And that's another aspect of what was going on. Furthermore, propitiation. These are terms that are important. Christ satisfied God's wrath on our sin when he died on that cross. And so God is propitiated. Redemption. Christ paid the penalty for our sin, which is death, in order that we might have salvation. Reconciliation. We've been, God has made it possible for us to be at peace with him. Forgiveness. Our sins are completely forgiven. You see, only through what Christ did on the cross could God offer us this salvation. And for, could the love of God be experienced by sinners like you and I? And could we know him in a personal way? God accomplished on the cross in providing salvation for us all that we need in order to have a right relationship with him. And when we go and have the Lord's Supper today, we're remembering what Christ did. We're... We're contemplating the implications of the broken body and the shed blood on our behalf. You see, not only did God provide our salvation on that cross, but also we have accomplished by Christ the defeat of death and Satan. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we read, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Christ, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who has the power of death that is the devil and might free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death 
I don't know how many of you were in Sunday school, but I showed some pictures of some missionaries, Ethiopian missionaries, who have been threatened with their, their own death, and God has wonderfully delivered them in the context of their ministry. Those men and women are fearless. And I was totally, I felt totally unworthy in their presence. Yeah, people called me a missionary. And people give me certain strokes for that, which are undeserved for sure. But guess what? The fearlessness and the confident faith that I saw manifested in these missionaries is just truly amazing. I'll tell you the story that I told earlier because some of you weren't in there. They told us their stories. The first village we visited, they planted a church. It's very small. It's in a Muslim area. And some Muslims did not like the fact, in fact, the imam in the village did not like the fact that Christian missionaries were in the village that was supposed to be Islamic, where they had a nice, huge, big mosque. And so he said when they came, either those missionaries go or I go, kind of laid down the gauntlet. And so as a result of that, some of the more radical Muslims decided to take him up on it, and they decided to try to destroy the church and beat and kill the missionaries if possible. And so they hatched a plan to do it. And they determined that in 16 days they would do it. And those dear godly missionaries, they didn't flee. They heard about the plot. They didn't flee. They spent those days in prayer and fasting asking God for His deliverance. On the 15th day, the day before they were supposed to carry out this plot, one of those plot Perpetrators, one of the two men that were behind this whole idea. His wife was feeding their baby boy, and the boy choked on the milk and died. And as a result, the next day, instead of going and burning down the church and killing the missionaries, they were burying the son of one of the men that was hateful of the Christians. And the other man who had perpetrated this idea, one of the other Muslims was so upset at him that he didn't carry it out. When this man was going back to his house, he was slaughtered in cold blood by another Muslim. Both of those men experienced tragedy. One actually died. Well, the other Muslims that were radical decided, we're going to do it again. And so they determined another day. And so the day that they were going to carry out this plot, the night before, God poured rain. They had unbelievable flooding. It never has rained like that. It's a very dry area. And everything was flooded. And they couldn't carry it out. And so the Muslims decided, and they, they read the signs. They said, you Christians... Your God is, is fighting for you. We're not going to... We, we, we can't win. And so now those missionaries are able to stay in the village. There's still plenty of antagonism. The Muslims are not glad they're there. They're trying to reach out to these people and show them the love of Christ and doing things like digging wells and providing soccer and other ministries for the children. But the fact is, God has protected them. They are fearless. They are confident. They are bold in the face of opposition. One of the things I want to comment on is, as I've talked about Islam, is understanding Islam and why they hate the cross so much. If you study Islam, the teaching of Islam from the Quran is that Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was given the Injil, the revelation of the Injil, and many of the stories that are in the Bible, Gospels, are in the Quran. But that when Jesus was going to be crucified, God delivered him out and somebody else was put on the cross. Some believe it was Judas. 
that he was replaced on the cross, that God would never allow his prophet to die in such a way. Please understand something about this. Muhammad really is the pattern for what a prophet ought to be like in Islam. Muhammad was a persecuted preacher, but he was... He had to escape and he went back and then came back to Mecca and conquered. The idea that Allah would always give total victory in war to his prophet. And so Allah would never, the thinking is that Allah would never allow his prophet to suffer. Remember, Middle Eastern cultures are shame-based cultures. It would be a shameful thing for a prophet to be put on a cruel cross, especially when in the Old Testament thinking, and it was true throughout that, where it says, cursed is he who's put on a cross. God, Allah would never allow that thing to happen. And so, in Islam, it's intolerable to think that a prophet of God would ever be allowed by God, the Father, to be put on the cross. And of course, they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. They believe he's the Christ, but not the Son of God. They believe he was taken up and he's in the second heaven awaiting to return. And when he comes, he's going to break all crosses. And he's going to berate Christians for worshiping him. He's going to marry. He's going to live an exemplary Muslim life. He's going to establish Islam in a prosperous time on earth. And then he's going to die. And that's going to, he's going to fulfill his, his purpose in the plan of Allah. Muslims hate the cross. Now it's no longer the red cross. It has to be the crescent, wherever you are in Muslim countries. And please, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be offensive to Muslims. I just want you to understand when you go to a Muslim country, the cross is offensive. And the New Testament talks about the offense of the cross. And when you become a missionary to a Muslim country and you stand for the message of the cross, you are going to be rejected. Because that's the third thing that's true about the cross. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you not only must receive the message of the cross and be saved by it, but you must take up the cross and follow me. And the cross is a symbol of Christ's humiliation, rejection, and hatred from the world. To be a Christian in many contexts of this world, is not to be a cool person that everybody thinks is so great. It's to be someone who's identified with Jesus and identified with the the cross that is a symbol of shame. And I'm afraid in our Western practice of Christianity, we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want all the blessings of our salvation... We want to be accepted by the world and we want to make a good name for ourselves and think that we've done it well. All of you know that if you're a bold witness in the place where you work or go to school, somebody's not going to like it. How many of us are afraid of the rejection that might come if we truly stood for Christ in a way that would be not unnecessarily offensive, mind you. I'm not talking about people who just make a a fool of themselves in the name of Jesus. I'm talking about being people who live out what it means to be a Christian and are not afraid to speak a word of identification with the one who loves them and they claim that they love. 
And I think it's time that we take a page from the book of some of our dear friends that I've had the privilege of being next to and felt very unworthy in their presence, namely those missionaries working among Muslims, and say, it's time to identify with Jesus. On the cross, but Jesus risen again. You see, the one thing that the Muslims don't have either, they don't have a Messiah that's risen from the dead to provide life. They have a place where Muhammad is buried, but they don't have a risen Savior. Our Savior died. Yes, He was rejected, but He had the ultimate victory. After His humiliation, after His death, after His cross work that provides our salvation, He rose again to prove that He was who He claimed to be, the very Son of God, who can give us what only He can give us, true life. So my challenge to you today is, as we come to the table, we need to embrace the cross. And by embracing the cross, we need to identify with it. We need to love the Jesus who died on it. And we need to be ready to take up our cross to follow a living Lord into His will and purpose for our life. One of the greatest hymns that's ever written and written is the, the hymn The Old Rugged Cross and it says all of this very well and I'll read it quickly on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame I love that old cross for the dearest of best for a world of lost sinners was slain oh that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction to me for the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary in the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true. Its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. This past week has been the missions conference at Multnomah Bible College. And during that missions conference, a story was told of a young man. And I guess I don't have it with me up here. It must be. Yeah, I didn't bring it. Sorry. It's a powerful story of a young man. And I'll just tell it to you. It happened in the 1540s in Japan. The authorities had taken the Christians, 26 of them, put them in prison, accused them, and then said, because of your Christian faith, we're going to put you on a cross. We're going to crucify you. And here, one of these people, the 26, was a young man. He was only 15 years of age. And one of the executioners said, young man, why are you, you, all you have to do is renounce Jesus and you can be set free. And this young man said, it would be better for you to hear my message and die with me than for me to renounce my faith. You need the message of the cross. And he went and he went up on his knees and he embraced that cross that was smaller than all the other 26 crosses. He embraced that cross and he was crucified that day because of his love for Jesus and his desire to embrace what that cross meant to him. And it was a powerful testimony at that time and it is to us today. And there are Christians around the world who are suffering for their faith 
And I think it's time that we not necessarily look for suffering, but that we embrace the cross and whatever that means for us in our day. May God help us to do that today.